This podcast is brought to you by Erickson Immigration Group. Welcome to Immigration Nerds. Today we have a special guest, partner at Wasden Vaness, Jonathan Wasden. It's a pleasure to have you on. Great to be here with you guys. Thank you. And of course, Justin Parsons, EIG's Managing Director. Thanks for coming on. Yep. Thanks, Ian. Um, so on March 12th, USCIS announced it would consider reopening select non-immigrant petitions that were previously denied based upon three rescinded policy memos. Starting with you, Jonathan, uh, I think a good place to start is to address what the three memos were, uh, what they were trying to accomplish, and then later we can talk about the reasons why rescinded. Sure. Well, you know, the, the short answer to what they were trying to accomplish was kill the H-1B program. But on a more macro, uh, micro scale, they were really aimed at trying to end the computer consulting or IT consulting industry business model and their use of the H-1B. So the, the first one was this employer determining employer-employee relationship memo that took a very convoluted definition or approach to reading what is a relatively straightforward definition of who is a, an employer in the H-1B space. So the, the reg, regulation came out with this disjunctive, very simple test that said, you are an H-1B employer if you sign the LCA and you have the ability to hire, pay, fire, or otherwise control the employee. So if you sign the LCA, you have the authority to hire, pay, and fire. So really signing the LCA makes you the employer under the law. They, uh, they interpreted that back in 2010 to come up with a standard for determining employer-employee relationship that nobody could quite ever figure out or determine what it was. And it was just more in the eye of the beholder of the individual adjudicator and created a lot of unpredictability. They basically shot that up with steroids back in 2018 with their contracts and itineraries memo and really enhanced that and said, you know, whether or not you're the employer is going to determine on, you know, a variety of different things. And one of the things that you have to do is provide this evidence of these guaranteed work assignments for the duration of the H-1B visa. So, you know, you have to show what they're going to be doing if you request three years what projects they're going to be working on, what specific you know, tools and things they'll be using for three years, which I don't think there's an employer in the world that can tell you what their employees are going to be doing next month, let alone three years from now. So it was a very bizarre requirement, which was, again, really aimed at the, the IT consulting industry because it, it was involving third-party placement. So what, what we started saying as a result of that memo was these approval notices for one day or a week or a month. And so these employers were in a perpetual cycle of filing uh, extension petitions. And sometimes these, these de short-term denials really is what they were. You know, these one-day approvals would come beyond the expiration date. And so you'd have all kinds of status issues. And it really just threw the entire H-1B system into a upheaval and chaos really and uh, just so that the rest of the industry wasn't left out cis came out with this computer programmer memo that 
was even more convoluted than the employer-employee memo, if that if that's possible and imaginable. So the the regulatory test for whether or not your position is a specialty occupation, there's a four-part test, and you only have to prove one of those four. Distilled down to its most simple essence, your job is a specialty occupation if basically 51%, you know, most of the people in the United States performing that job have a particular degree in a specific specialty, and your employee has that degree. So, you know, for computer-related occupations, most of them are described in the Department of Labor's Occupational Outlook Handbook, the OOH, as most require a degree, but some allow for a degree in liberal arts with computer experience gained elsewhere. And that meets the 51% test of the regulation. What CIS did was say, well, clearly this means that a computer science degree is not necessary. And because anybody with a liberal arts degree can do this job, it's not a specialty occupation. So it really just omitted the first part of the OOH and the last part of the OOH that says you can qualify for the job by virtue of specialized training or experience outside of a degree, which by the way, the statute and regulations all explicitly anticipate being acceptable for a specialty occupation. And they just said, well, you can do this job with a liberal arts degree, so it's not a specialty occupation. So those three things, which were pretty clearly against the plain language of the regulation, are were you know codified basically in these policy memos. And now those three issues are have been withdrawn and we're moving towards a more common sense era in H-1B adjudications within USCIS. Setting up pretty unfair standards when it comes down to it. Justin, um, have you seen it similarly in, in that way? Yeah, I, I would agree. John, did you did you guys, were you involved in the litigation that led to the withdrawal of these, um, these yeah, moments? So we, we uh, along with, a bunch of companies in what's called the IT Service Alliance, which is a trade organization, started filing suits across the country. The big one, then, you know, the first major one that we filed was in DC in the District of, of Columbia. And I think we had IT serve as the lead plaintiff challenging the policy memo on the contracts and itineraries requirement. We also challenged the itinerary regulation itself that's in the, the regulations and challenging it because it was superseded by a statutory change. And then we also took on the employer-employee relationship memo in that case. And then we started filing all around the country because on the off chance that we lost in DC, we wanted to see if we could create you know, circuit splits and then try and get this at the higher court level if we, if we needed to. And then the the uh, computer programmer memo or the computer related occupation issue, the specialty occupation question, we were suing on that as well all across the country. It didn't really lend itself to one consolidated case so much just because each, each application for H-1B is a little different and the, their legal approach was a little bit nuanced in each case, but we probably 
had 30 or 40 cases on that alone that uh, we litigated and each of them and other people were litigating the programmer memo as well. And they all, the government lost every single one of those that went to a decision because it was nonsense. The only one that they didn't lose was in front of a judge in California. And surprisingly, this one judge uh, sided with the government on this and said it made sense. And it was appealed up to the Ninth Circuit and very quickly uh, and summarily was beat down by the Ninth Circuit. And I think at that point, because the Ninth Circuit was so resoundingly dismissive of the, the government's analysis, the agency knew the writing was on the wall and they just gave up and they withdrew the memo. Sure. I don't know if you want to talk because I know your firm and, and you know, um, your reputation in terms of the, the lawsuits that you guys have been involved in, you know, over the past, you know, several years to really try to try to um, beat down and and go against a lot of the 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 Trump administration, and the Trump era policies. I don't know if you just want to give a, a brief summary for the folks who are going to listen to the podcast about kind of your background um, I think you're a former oil attorney and maybe just kind of the litigation that you've been involved in over the past several years. Yeah, sure. So our firm has three attorneys. All three of us worked in the same office in the Department of Justice, which is the Office of Immigration Litigation, also called OIL. And we were defending the government's um, employment-based policies and employment-based decisions when they got sued all around the country. So. I ended up leaving oil and working in-house at USCIS's administrative appeals office for a while on employment-based issues. And then I think we all just had more fun than we could handle working for the government and uh, got out at different times and somehow managed to come back together in private practice and uh, have had quite a bit of fun. We started taking on the Trump administration's policies. The first you know, case that we filed was on a website change actually that prohibited employers from using uh, STEM OPT students on a third party placement. So they just very subtly put that into the web suit and we filed a case with a preliminary injunction motion in Texas of all places, which defies common sense and wisdom really to file an immigration case in Texas if you really want to win. But it, it, the government's position was so bad that they had to go back and before they answered in federal court, they had changed their website, deleted all the information that prohibited third-party placement in the OPT program. And you know that was really important because it's, it showed the, the client base out there who had traditionally been terrified of litigating against the government that it can work. I think, you know, historically nobody wanted to go to court. They were, there was a lot of different reasons why they were afraid to go to court. And probably top among them was that the government was seen as being invincible. And then they saw that, oh, no, they're pretty fallible. And if you have the right arguments and you have the right case, you can win and you can actually get results in court. And, you know, through a com combination of having people that knew federal court litigation, knew immigration, and quite frankly, an adversary that was making such stupid decisions, they were making us look good. 
you know, we, we had a lot of fun and we, we racked up a lot of wins during the Trump administration and probably we're going to be cleaning up a lot of that and still keeping in the game during the Biden administration. Yeah. So something you said about that that's really kind of resonated with me, which is that the first couple of years of the Trump administration, we had a lot of clients who were getting a lot of adverse um, and I, I, we thought erroneous decisions on H-1Bs where, you know, USCIS was was stating that, you know, certain positions were not specialty occupations or, you know, were denying cases where individuals had non-conforming degrees, but they were for, you know, computer uh, software engineers and, and whatnot. Um, we encouraged a lot of our clients and we, you know, we represent a lot of folks in the tech space to, to sue and to challenge these. And a lot of them were very reluctant in terms of, um, you know, suing USCIS or, or lodging lawsuits against the government in fear of retribution. What are, your, what are your thoughts on that? And what would you say to, you know, companies in terms of, you know, they may think it's a great idea to fight back. Um, and, you know, our firm may be on board and we, we may, we may want to come to you and say, let's file suit. But the company may say, um, we're afraid that it's going to be bad for for PR or that the government is going to put us on a, a watch list and, and you know, redline us. What are your thoughts on something like that? that? That's honestly the first question I get every single time I talk to somebody who's never sued the government. So I'll answer that two different ways. One is as a former government person and one is somebody who's now suing in the private sector. So as a former government attorney working for the Justice Department, had, if I had gotten any wind, and same with my, my partners, we all uniformly agree on this point. If I had any sense that the agency was going to be shady or do something to retaliate, we would have blown a head gasket. We would have been running out of the flagpole. That would have just, that would have been something that would not have been tolerated. And there would have been high level meetings and somebody in the Justice Department would have pulled the plug on that. The, the other thing is from the agency perspective. So at the AAO, I handled potential litigation cases. You know, let's look at this because we might end up in court. And potential litigation case was code for do anything you can to avoid denying this because we don't want to handle litigation because litigation for the agency causes a ton of work. And if there's one thing that's universally true about government employees, there's no extra pay for extra work. And they're really not budgeted to handle litigation when they do their manning. And nobody wants to do it. It's just a pain in the butt. So potential litigation cases were code for approved, if at all possible. And what it took to be a potential litigation case is that company had sued before in the past. And it happened so rarely back in the day that everybody would remember who had sued them. I mean, we were talking about maybe 10 H-1B lawsuits annually. So it, it was very funny. And the, the other thing, even if they wanted to, even if they had a desire to retaliate, the agency is so technologically inept, they, they really can't. It's still a paper-based system. You know, it's still, you have your non-immigrant file. Everything is paper. There's a very, very limited number of digitized facts about a case. And those digitized facts were the same facts that they were collecting back in the 80s when they made the computer system that they're now using to track the cases. 
you know, back in the 80s, you have the black screen, green letters, flashing square. They still have the same system. It's on PCs now. You load up the app and it brings your screen black with the same green letters, catching the same fields. And it's all data entry. So it has to, everything had to have been input in correctly in order for them to track it. But there's no field for them to track, you know, who's sued and who hasn't. There's just no way for them to, to do it. And once they're done with your non-immigrant file, it goes to a cave. I think it's in Arkansas where they store all the records, put on a shelf, never to see the light of day again. And that's the end of it. It's not, they're not keeping all of your files together until you have an A number. And then only your immigrant papers go in there. Your non-immigrant stuff is never collected into one location. So it, technologically, they, they couldn't do it, even if they had the motivation. You know, it's like conspiracies require two things, motivation and technological capability, and the agency has neither of those. But I think the, the ultimate example is when we filed our big case on the uh, 2018 memo, we had clients, client companies who had seen 80% denials, 80 to 90%, depending on the company. So we filed a case challenging those decisions. The next year comes around, the, the lottery comes, they get selected in the lottery, and they file about the same number of petitions the next year. They had high 90% approval rates. Now, mind you, their peer companies who weren't in litigation still had the 80% denial rates while they were experiencing 90 plus percent approval rates. So, so that to me probably speaks the loudest about how unlikely retaliation is. I, I, I just don't really see it as a, something to worry about. I don't know if you guys handle um, the H4ED and the H4 delay lawsuits. I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about, about that and um, kind of what you're seeing with, with some of that litigation. Oh God, dude, how, how much time do you got? So actually timely question, we're filing a class action in Seattle on H4 and L2 delays today. So we'll probably be amending the case in 10 to 14 days when we file the preliminary injunction motion to uh, add some more plaintiffs in. We wanna make the class certification part rock solid. Right now, I think we have 35 H's and another number of uh, L's. And just to be safe, we wanna have each of them at 40. That way, if the government hurries up and approves some of them, we still are gonna be class certified, no problem. But these delays are catastrophic. You know, we're seeing the California Service Center for a while was posting up to 24 months for an H4 extension. You know, 24 months delay on a three-year benefit doesn't really work out, you know, very well for the math. So it was just crazy. But what's honestly the most troubling is the government blamed the delays on the biometric requirement that it created and then were exacerbated by COVID. So here's the problem with the government's case right now. When they, the history of this is with the H-4s, when they came into office during the Trump administration, right away they put on the regulatory agenda 
that they were going to rescind the H4 EAD regulation. And their target date for that was early 2018. So early 2018 comes around, they can't get it off the ground. And then April 2018 comes around and they publish in the Federal Register a notice that they're going to change the I-539, which is the H-4 extension form, H-4NL2 and a few others, to require biometrics. So March of 2019 rolls around and they say that, okay, H-4s all now require biometrics. We will no longer concurrently process your H-1B and your H-4 because the H-4s need biometrics. And by the way, we can't reuse biometrics that you've previously given at the consulate or at the port of entry. We have to get new biometrics because the FBI fingerprint system does not allow those biometrics to be used from the consulate and port of entry. So the agency's justification for requiring people to provide new biometrics was that the FBI background check system couldn't accept the biometrics from the consulate and the port of entry. First problem here is the justification for biometrics wasn't to conduct criminal background checks. The agency looked at this issue when they created the H-4 EAD regulation, and they said that there's no concerns about fraud or criminality in the H-4 program that would require additional security screening or security checks. So they already are on record saying that's not a concern or not an issue. The, uh, uh, the other, the justification that the agency said they wanted this for was identity management. So identity management just means, all right, so we have your name, your birthday, your parents' names, the place you were born. That lets us know that you are the John Smith that is applying for these things. But on the off chance, we have two John Smiths with the same name, obviously birth date, place that they were born. We're gonna add one more layer to that, which is a biometrics, which will make sure that these two files stay separate. That way, when John Smith one files, it goes to his file. And when John Smith two files, everything goes to the correct files. And there's no mismatching of paperwork. So that was their justification. So here we are. We, we filed a, a brief in DC court the other day and the USCIS chief for the biometrics office put in this sworn declaration under penalty of perjury, mind you. So, so he's supposedly the expert for the agency and he testified that US, uh, the, there was no legal authority for them to provide these biometrics to the FBI system. There's no capability, technical capability for this to happen. So curious thing about these two systems, the DHS Department of State system is called IDENT and it's managed by the, the US visit office within DHS. So when you go to the consulate, you have your application for your visa petition, it gets approved, you get stamped, you provide your fingerprints and the photo. You fly here to the States, again, you give your fingerprints, they check those electronically, make sure they match, make sure you're the same John Smith who showed up at the consulate. Then you go on your merry way. Government keeps those biometrics. So that's the IDENT system. The FBI system 
initially was different than two different, did not communicate until 1999 when Congress authorized money and required those two systems to become interoperable. Again, there was another round of legislation requiring interoperability and giving funding. Interoperability kicks off around 2006 with tech in three phases. The first phase completed in 2006. The second phase was completed in 2008. And in 2011, these two systems were fully interoperable. There's all kinds of regulations, notices in the Federal Register, everything talking about interoperability. And here's how the system works. The system works that if you query somebody as a USCIS employee and IDENT, if there is a hit, a match on those biometrics with the FBI system, there's a flag shown up in the system. You click on the flag and you can see what the criminal history is and, and whether or not that impacts admissibility or eligibility for benefit. So everything that the government says they were trying to accomplish by requiring new biometrics has already been accomplished through existing systems. So their justification for the delay is questionable. Let's just say that. And it's even more questionable in light of the fact that they were trying to come up with a way to kill the H4 EAD program, but never were able to you know, get it done. You know, they finally sent their proposed regulation to the Office of Management and Budget, which kicked it back because the agency screwed up their analysis and couldn't get it done right. And so that's when we see this biometric requirement come out. It's not supported by anything that makes any sense. And it's responsible, it's solely responsible for jamming people up and making them wait, lose their jobs, lose their employment. And there is that minor perjury part that we're gonna to have to deal with in a, a filing that we're filing next week in DC. So, that's where we're at. So the class action that we're filing in Seattle is going to really focus hard on biometrics and the government's justi justification for biometrics and bad faith in creating the biometrics requirement and delays. So we are starting to see with our clients, um, so we had the, the, the uh, proclamations under uh, Trump for um, the COVID travel restrictions for various areas, including the Schengen area. And then it was it was um, withdrawn. And then the Biden administration uh, put a new one in for, for the Schengen area and, and the other regions as well. And what we are seeing uh, with the State Department right now is that the national interest exceptions are being adjudicated quite differently by the embassies than they were under the Trump administration and the state under, under Trump. They've really eliminated the ability for uh, managers, executives to come to the U.S., whether to, you know, to start new businesses or just come over for, for regular businesses. I'm just curious to know if you have anything in the pipeline in terms of that sort of litigation and what are the, what are the options to, to litigate against, against state on, on, on issues like this? So on the Trump era travel ban, we filed a case and it's on appeal right now at the, the D.C. circuit but it was really limited to the H-1Bs because there were certain issues within the statutory language of the H-1B that we thought provided the best argument to attack the, the Trump travel ban or visa ban. The, I think once we get done with the, the class action on the H-4s and L-2s, 
that's something that's going to have to be revisited, it, especially when there's really no justification for it right now. I mean, everybody's vaccinated. Everybody's getting vaccinated. I mean, it, it, there's just no no reason for it. And it's just it's bizarre that we're still dealing with it. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. So we're, we're coming up on our time. Thank you so much, John, uh, for coming on with your experience with litigation on the government side and also in the private sector. Uh, you bring a, a unique perspective and you're certainly on the front line. So uh, we, we appreciate what you do and coming on to give us this insight. Yeah, I, I would also just say, John, thanks for everything you've done for kind of the industry over the past four years. Um, in terms of all the litigation you guys have done and everything you accomplished that benefits our clients, uh, even though they're not involved in litigation, just everything you've done for the industry. I just wanted to say thank you. Well, I, I appreciate it. Thank you. It's uh, honestly, when you're doing something that's fun, it, you sometimes forget about you know the impact you're doing because you're just having fun. And every now and again, we'll meet up with clients that um, you know sit there and they tell us stories about the impact we've had on people's lives through the litigation. And it kind of takes you back and it, you know, it's kind of sobering that we've been able to, to help people as many as we've been able to help. And it, it's kind of like doing public interest work that we can actually live on the salary we're making. So it, mm -hmm. it's nice to be able to make a positive contribution and still eat, so. Keep fighting on. Thank you to Lee Researcher, Con Branch, assistant producers Luke Bianco and David White, and music by Brandon Williams. Follow Immigration Nerds on Twitter at IMMNerds and Erickson Immigration Group on LinkedIn to join in the conversation. I'm Ian Gaines. See you next week.